Welcome to this episode of Women to Women podcast series. Our guest today is Renu Juneja. She is the head of the scientific evidence and communications function in US Medical Affairs Oncology at Janssen Biotechnology Inc. Before joining Janssen, Renu was the head of Medical Communications Group and MedImmune, a worldwide biologics research and development arm of AstraZeneca. Prior to that, she was with Novo Nordisk for 16 years and grew from a medical writer to the leadership role to head strategic scientific communications group. After finishing her PhD in reproductive biology and biochemistry from the Postgraduate Institute of Medical Education and Research in India, Renu joined the Population Council in New York as a postdoctoral fellow. Two years later, she received an independent research grant from the Lalor Foundation and joined the Department of Molecular Biology at the Princeton University. She has over 25 publications in peer-reviewed journals and has presented at various national and international conferences. Welcome to Women to Women podcast, Renu. So excited to have you with us here today. Yeah, I am so excited. So excited to have a conversation with an old friend. I know, like we've worked together uh, for so many years. When we were chatting previous to this recording, it's like so many things I didn't know. So I'm super excited to learn even more about you. So let's start all the way from the back. Where did you grow up? Your childhood influences as you grew up? So I grew up in a very small town in northern India called Nangal, a very small town. And the big thing in that that town was that everybody worked for One Fertilizer Corporation. You know, so we had our own school, we had our, our own, you know, colony, our own shopping area, our own club. So anything good or bad happened in school, whole town would not. So that was the thing that if you got in trouble in school before you even reached home, your parents knew about it. Similarly, if anything good happened, everybody knew about it. I would say my childhood influence was two things. One, one of my classmates who was just annoyingly so intelligent that he topped class like every exam, every year, every exams, every term that it was, I was like annoyed with him. Like, you know, I needed to kind of beat him. So that was one big influence in growing up. And the second thing was my dad. So my dad became refugee at the age of 13 you know, when India and Pakistan divided independence, right, 1947, uh, he was 13 years old. And he was living in Pakistan, part of big India at that time. So he migrated from Pakistan, which is now Pakistan to to India, and his education was disrupted at age 13, right? So he never went back to school. He never finished his education, struggled all his life, you know, worked very, very hard, from the ground level job to, you know, slowly, slowly going up. He was laser focused on education for his kids. So I think those two big influences. So were you an only child? You had siblings? Yeah, so I have an older brother and I have a younger sister. So I'm middle child. And, you know, my dad is fortunately, you know, with me in U.S., uh, lives close by and I visit him every weekend. So this weekend I asked him, I mean, everybody around our relatives and everybody told you, not to spend money or, you know, uh, on girls or, you know, education and all that stuff. So what was in you that you kind of were so focused on the education of all of your three kids? He said, I didn't get education. So educating just one kid was not enough. It, I was the slow laser focus to kind of get as much education or as higher education as possible to all my three kids. And as I told you that we lived in that colony where everybody worked in fertilizer, 
corporation. There was a magazine, monthly magazine, where the kids who topped, who went to, you know, got a gold medal or anything, their pictures would come in that magazine. And of course, at that time in India, it would say Renu Minocha, that was my maiden name, daughter of Tej Prakash Minocha, right? So that was the ultimate, you know, reward for him. I mean, he would keep that magazine under his, you know, arm all the time and showing it to people. His disadvantage or unfortunate incident kind of converted into a big focus for us. That's so cute though. Like, you know, father carrying the accomplishment of the daughter all everywhere. That's that's, that's so nice. So you went on to do your PhD. Like you didn't stop with undergrad. You didn't stop at master's. You did all the way. So when you started... um, Uh, straight in high school level did you want to do a PhD at that point or like what was your thought process at that point what were some of the career options you looked at yeah so you know it is so funny I mean you know this Divya more than I do is that in India it's like engineers it's doctors it's lawyers right kind of thing so my brother when I was in high school he was already in engineering school so I don't know it was my choice or everybody's choice or you know I mean I cannot pinpoint but for me, it was going into medical school. That was the focus. So I actually left my high school after 10th grade to go to a prep school to get ready for medical school. But unfortunately, I did not get it. And there was no alternate plan. I mean, there was no backup plan. I don't now I think about it. And I say, how is that possible or crazy? Because as you know, in India, I mean, the acceptance rate is less than 2% in, in one of some of these big medical schools. So I don't know what I was thinking. So then when I did get in medical school, one of my professors suggested to look into biomedical sciences. So, you know, Punjab University, Chandigarh, that's where I was in my prep school, very familiar with Chandigarh and all. I went to Punjab University, applied for biochemistry uh, honors program, got into that. So that's how I got into biomedical sciences. No, that was not the plan in high school. But plan changed once I didn't get into it. And then you kept going in the same field, higher and higher up. So what kept you motivated to go for higher studies in the same subject? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, the one thing was I wanted to just not stop after undergrad or master's. I was interested in research. I was interested in, you know, pursuing. But I think at the back of my mind, there was something which was that if I do my PhD, then I can go to US for postdoctoral fellowship. All the jobs I was even thinking or looking at, like teaching in a medical school, they all required PhD that time. But there were very few jobs in India that time. Very few medical schools. Pharma was almost like non-existent. It was not a big pharma sector in, in India, early 90s, I am talking about. They were beginning to start, but not there. So I think my PhD drive was, Uh, mainly for postdoctoral fellowship, having my lab, having academic role, you know, that eye on that thing, which kind of pushed me for PhD. So once you got your PhD, you came to US for postdoctoral. So how was that transition? You know, it's very different. The education system is different. Culturally, it's very different. So how did you adjust to all of that change? Very, very good question. You know, Uh, I would say that even during PhD, you know, my second year of PhD, I got married. I was seven months pregnant when I defended my thesis. First daughter was born. And I was applying for postdoctoral fellowships because that's what I really wanted to do. And I do want to take a minute here to thank my husband, thank my partner. I think that's the most important thing a woman can do in their lives. 
like Cheryl Sandberg has talked about in her book, Lean In as well. We don't get to choose our brothers or our fathers or, you know, friends. Yes, some, but classmates are there who who are there. Choosing your life partner who will support you in your career and in your ambition is one of the most important decisions a woman takes, you know, who's career minded. So my husband, who was, you know, he had done his engineering, his MBA from India, was working as executive in one of the good companies in India, you know, agreed to leave everything behind and follow me and come to US so that I could continue my career. I could continue my journey uh, in academia. So to answer your question, how was it? it? It was, you know, and now I think about it, it was a blessing, actually, you know, because I got two fellowships and one of the fellowship was from Rockefeller Foundation, which paid for our airfare for both me, my husband and our 10 month old baby. If they didn't pay that airfare, I really don't know if we would have made it, if we would have made it to US because there was not tons of money in the family. It was a blessing at that time that, you know, people kind of said to me later on, you got the invitation on the platter. We came here on Rockefeller Foundation Fellowship and I had two two years of, you know, fellowship in Population Council. $1,800 $1,800 per month, no taxes. But it was, you know, in, in a way, it was a good path to come in that, you know, we I had a job from day one and, you know, everything was lined up. But on the other hand, as you said, cultural, learning how to, you know, take a subway, how to work in a lab in US, how to kind of, you know, communicate with your colleagues and your investigator and others. And it was learning curve was pretty short, deep, I would say, right? But it, it worked out. So you also mentioned you actually came with your 10-month-old daughter. So now being a new mom is a huge responsibility unto itself. And then you had this post-fellowship that, you know, postdoc fellowship that you needed to focus on. And of course, you're getting a scholarship, which puts even more pressure on you, right? To do the best you can. How did that transition work out and what were some of the challenges and how did you overcome those challenges? So a couple of things, again, blessed, blessed to be married to my husband, who was, you know, still at home when I came, right? He started looking for a job or looking at, you know, sending his resume and all, but he was home. So he took care of her. First few months, he took care of her. But then we did realize that in order for both of us to make our careers, we will have to invest, right? So we started finding a, a babysitter for her, leaving her there for a few hours, accepting that, that that investment is needed because, you know, otherwise you will feel that, oh, I can't leave my daughter to, with somebody or, you know, in order to balance careers and, you know, parenthood, we did a kind of understood that we will have to do that. And we did that. And then in summertime, I, I came in 91. So 91 summer, I got this great opportunity to go to work in Marine Biological Lab at Woods Hole in Massachusetts, you know, which was a three-month fellowship. And, you know, it was an absolutely wonderful opportunity. So that time, my mother-in-law came from India. You know, she stayed with our daughter uh, you know, with me in Woods Hole, and I worked in Marine Biological Lab. So it is great support from family, great support, you know, thinking that we will have to leave our daughter with babysitter to, you know, get going on the career. That's a great point, though. A lot of times we don't realize you have to invest in your career. You have to sometimes take the emotions a little bit on the side and say, 
this is what we have to do for the best of the family and for what you really want to achieve and go for it. So there's no room to feel guilty that you're, you know, not doing what you're supposed to do because it's a joint responsibility. Great point. And Kudos for you for finding the exact right partner. So definitely credit goes to him. During this time, right, you had so many different fellowships, so many different places you worked at. Did you ever seek out mentors or who did you treat as your mentors and what kind of advice did they give you? So I I would say that during my academic career, I was so focused on getting my next grant and getting my, you know, tenure track role. Mentorship was more like informal, right? People who were in my lab, who had the similar journey, you know, before me. They came from India, or they came from China, or they came from other countries. It was more like informal mentoring, informal gathering information from them, and getting advice and suggestions and moving on. Once I reached Princeton University, and I had my independent grant for three years, I said, oh, wow, I made it. You know, I am on my path to get faculty position and, you know, in academia. But little I realized that how difficult it was to, you know, continue to renew your grants. And that was my dream. That was the dream I came with from India to, you know, have a tenure track role, to have a position and my lab and my students. But when I looked around in Princeton at that time, Princeton changed a lot after that. But at that time, or even applying to other institutes outside Princeton, it was mainly male, white America who were in those roles, you know, kind of thing. There were very little diversity and it was very, very hard, very hard to get grants and everything. So I I remember being very, very frustrated and depressed that, you know, oh my God, I worked so hard. I uprooted the family. I brought them here and now I'm not going to get a tenure track position. And then my husband told me that don't look back 30 years, you know, look ahead 30 years, what you can do with your degree and everything in there, right? It took me a little time, but to answer your question, I started focusing more on mentors and others when I moved from academia to industry. So to say, everybody said to me that time in Princeton University, going on the darker side, right? In that time, leaving academia. So what prompted you to go to the industry? I was just not getting anything in academia. You know, it was just hard. I was living under poverty line. I mean, was making, I don't remember now, 24,000 with two kids now, you know, under five. And I was, I think, taking less than $2,000 home and paying $1,325 out of those $2,000 in daycare, you know, because the older one was going into a full-fledged daycare now, and younger one was with the babysitter, because we realized that it is their foundation. We are not going to compromise on that. We have money or no money. We're going to send her to a best daycare, you know, in the, in the area and all. So I applied on, you know, R&D side in the industry, Got a couple of interviews, but nothing materialized until I saw a advertisement for a medical writer role in Novo Nordisk in Star Ledger, which is our local newspaper in New Jersey, as you know, applied, got the job and then started my journey, you know, in in pharmaceutical industry. It has been a great journey. So somebody who's um, looking to be a medical writer or looking to grow in that field, what would your advice be? What kind of roles should they seek out for as their initial roles and what kind of degrees or courses should they focus on? Yeah, so I have seen that I must have hired like close to 50 medical writers, right? Both for regulatory writing and publication writing. I would say if you are serious about medical writing, get your PhD, 
right? Because otherwise you're gonna get like, you will go with your masters. I've had a couple of medical writers, really good writers with their masters, but then you can go to a certain level and then you get stuck. With your PhD, you can just kind of keep going and growing. And my advice to you know anybody postdoctoral fellow in academia looking to get into industry would be to connect with people, find out more, you know, what kind of roles you can do with your PhD or PhD or, you know, other degrees in pharma, right? I mean, I had no, when I got that interview, I had no clue about what medical writing was, right? I talked to a few friends, I read a book sitting in Barnes and Noble, you know, Goodman Gilman about clinical trials and pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics, because that book was $110, no way I could buy that, you know, at that time. So just sat in Barnes and Noble and read it for two days in there, right? So my suggestion would be just connecting with people and people like you and me, Divya, who in a way have made it in pharma. We are now eager and really excited to pay it forward, right? We want to help people. We want to help younger people come in in pharma because we need those people in pharma. It's a win-win situation there, right? So my advice would be reach out to people, you know, search them on LinkedIn or your network or connections, reach out to people and learn what kind of roles you can do in pharma. That's where the journey starts. Academia does prepare us very well in, you know, analytical skills, writing skills, presentation skills, because we have to go and present at different congresses and others, right? So scientific acumen, all those things were really I would say solid in academia. Corporate world just has a different culture, right? It just has a different skills that you need, you know, relationship building and collaborating matrix environment, which is not as much in academia, right? Because you have your labs, you have your projects. Now, of course, the cross institutes and cross countries collaboration is happening in academia as well. But I think the biggest thing I learned was the marketing side commercial, right? They are not bad words. It's okay to work with a commercial colleague or with a sales colleague. We all work for the same company, right? Kind of things in there. I think those were the things that kind of, I almost had to come out of my shell slowly to learn those things. And during all of this time, did you ever feel that being a woman was a disadvantage? You felt it would have been different if you were not a woman? And how did you really get through those situations? You know what? I never felt that. I just never felt that way. I think I told you this, you know, when we met last time and having a conversation because my dad, my mother, my, you know, everybody around me treated me and my brother equal. It never even occurred to me that, oh, I can't do this because I am a woman, right? And then fortunately I met a great partner, you know, who completely supported me with my career. And, and moving to U.S. and all. Yes, I mean, there were a few things. Like, uh, you know, I would get to a hotel in um, U.S. traveling for business or something, 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock, and I would be watching over my shoulder or I'm a little nervous, right? Those kind of things. But for career or, or in job that I can do this job because I'm a woman, it never even occurred to me. I, I just went and I totally believe that I can do it was very very fortunate especially with my first job in the right company at the right time when the company was just taking off from three million dollar company to five billion dollar company 
and with that growth comes so many opportunities you know first or second time may i may have hesitated raising my hand uh, but you know then i was pushed into it that okay you know go and do it uh, we would like you to take on this role and i said to myself oh if my boss thinks my vp thinks i can do it i can do it probably i can do it so once or twice you know i was little hesitant but then third time i was just ready to go so young women trying to take leadership roles hesitate many a times because of self doubt and lack of confidence what would you advise them i think my biggest um suggestion would be don't lean out before you have to don't lean out i have met, met young women oh you know i am going to get married and then i'm going to have kids so maybe i'll go into teaching are you engaged to get married i mean uh, why are you even thinking when you you are you know intelligent enough and smart enough to do other i'm not saying teaching is anything bad or wrong or anything but oh then i will have time off with my kids if that's the only reason you are choosing teaching i'm not sure that's the right choice if you have a good partner with you then you will figure it out you know sometimes he'll compromise sometimes you will compromise and things will just go just fine and the other thing you mentioned um divya before that you know just not having that guilt uh, i mean i remember first time when i uh, my first daughter was born in india we would get 3 months of maternity leave i went back after little over 2 months because i needed that adult conversation learning you know i was in middle of my phd i was you know injecting animals and all that stuff balancing that it's not that i didn't love my daughter but i knew that you know i am missing something which is making me frustrated and not happy and then i'm not being a good mother or patient mother with my kid right so same thing i mean i think not feeling guilty or not leaning out before that situation arises what do you read outside of work i mean i am reading you know nowadays you see so much online right some great articles in atlantic or some great articles in new york times or wall street journal right i mean you just see something here and there i am not like a big uh, one thing i read you know every day or i am a big books reader but i do find articles here and there which kind of align with my interest or you know i learn something from them in last few years i read so much about michelle obama i read about nancy pelosi i mean oh my god that woman and from that time right i mean she's like close to 80 now what all obstacles she had to overcome and go with that but yeah i mean i do read it but um but wherever my interest takes me so if you were not here what would you be doing i am very very happy where i am i love my job and the big the most important part of my job is seeing my team members learn and grow really helping my team members find their potential find their nation had seen them grow right if i was a individual contributor i'm not sure i would be happy you know it is that my team engaging with people engaging with my team members that's the core of my passion in my job so i love that part but to answer your question if i was not doing this i would be i would have a farm house big farm house with animals and you know my kitchen garden and flowers and all that stuff I mean I just simply love that. It just gives me so much peace and calm inside. I mean the moment I go and I see a tomato, you know, little bit and then growing and growing, it is just amazing to me 
how this whole thing works out. That's the one thing that I have not been able to achieve <laughs> or get good at is gardening, but it's work in progress, it's still going. In terms of women, do you think there are certain traits that we should develop to get the most out of any situation? I think the best thing, I, I mean, I'm N of one. I know that I'm just one person, right? But looking back, I think best thing we can do for women is to treat them like men. Just raise them like all opportunities are open for them, right? I know you have two daughters. I have two daughters. I mean, our daughters are, there is no limit. There is no that they cannot do. Or we have any time told them, oh, you can't do this because you're a girl or you're a daughter or whatever, right? I think that's the best thing we can do for women. We work in a world where we work with both men and women. In American society, African-American got their right or the society changed because there were enough white men or white people who stood up to support that movement. I do believe for women to continue to grow and continue to get leadership positions, we need, do need men who stand shoulder to shoulder with us, you know, who support us, who help us, you know, as, a, as like in my career, again, I'm N of one that I didn't get as much mentoring or guidance from women. I was actually disappointed from a couple of women leaders. You know, I didn't get it, but I was very fortunate to have great men mentors or leaders in my career who helped me kind of thing there. So I think as a woman, I am very, very mindful of that. I didn't get that from another woman leaders, but I bent backwards to help other women. So I think if we raise them, you know, having the sky is the limit. And then we, we also raise our boys and make our husbands aware and our fathers and brothers aware that, you know, women are equal shoulder to shoulder with men. I think we have made a lot of progress in that way. We will make a lot of progress. That's great advice. So any last comments for our listeners? So I would mm -hmm. say that just go and live your life. Find your passion. You know, do what you love to do. Don't go after oh, that job will give me more money or that job will give me summer off or that job will give me, you know, something extra, you know, credits or other benefits, just go and do what you really love to do, you know, and success will follow. Because if you do what you love to do, then you will play to your strength, you will be good at it, you will make, you know, good choices and good career. But don't underestimate your own power, your own resilience, your own leadership. We are women are known for self doubting. We do that all the time to ourselves. So I would say just fly away. Live, live your life, you know, as, as you would like to and as you dream of living and don't put limitations on yourself. Thank you so much, Renu, for your time and all the great advice. We really appreciate it.